Hello and welcome to this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Isaac and I'm really looking forward to today's episode because we're jumping into a new series that we've entitled, How Do You Know? And we're going to be asking questions in this series that are a little bit difficult to answer. For instance, how do you know that the gospel itself is actually reliable? How do you know how God feels about LGBTQ questions and abortion and what is actually even right and wrong? So we're hoping that as we go through this series, you really do feel equipped to live out your faith in a greater way and that you are more prepared than ever to take your next step with Jesus. So in today's message, this is the question we're asking. How do you know that the gospel is reliable? Can we be sure that the gospel accounts are actually reliable or do we simply have to have blind faith? So Pastor Dave is going to unpack this question in part one of our new series, How Do You Know? So without further ado, let's jump into this message titled, How Do You Know the Gospel is Reliable? So about several years ago, I sat down at Applebee's late night appetizers, you know, you get them half off, and I was sitting down with uh, a young man who had gone to this church while he was in high school. He was about 21 years old at the time, and he had just walked away from the faith. He was a self-proclaimed atheist, and on one hand, as his pastor, I was obviously discouraged that he had walked away from the faith, but I was also very blessed that he would spend some time with me and tell me why he walked away from the faith, because as a pastor, it can be difficult for people to tell me why they walked away from the faith. So we sat down for a couple meetings over late night appetizers and talked about all kinds of different things from, you know, evolution and science and Christian ethics and uh, morality and how do you know the Bible's true and how do you know the Gospels are true And I remember at one point he said, why would I follow this man who lived 2,000 years ago whose teachings really have no bearing on my life anymore? And so we began to talk about that. And through the course of our conversations, he made this statement that has sort of haunted me uh, throughout the last several years in a good way. This is the statement he made on more than one occasion. He said to me, hey, Dave, the onus should be on the church to present compelling evidence that Jesus is worth following. And as we began to talk about that, I discovered uh, that he really did have a lot of questions about the truth of Christianity, and he was unsatisfied with the answers that he found. And so we began to talk about that. And as I've thought about this question over the years, I agree with him. I do think that it is the church's responsibility to present compelling evidence to the world about why Jesus is actually worth following. Now, you may have heard people say, well, there's really no way you can know that Jesus is worth following. You just have to have faith, right? You got to just check your brain at the door. Don't ask too many questions. You know, don't try to pull up the carpet or look behind the curtain. You just got to believe, right? And essentially what those people are saying is that you got to have faith, which means, you know, there's really not any evidence to believe. So you just sort of have to believe. You have to kind of check your brain at the door. Don't ask too many questions. You just kind of hope it all works out in the end. But the reality is that early Christians never asked us to believe that way. Jesus certainly never asked us to take those kinds of leaps. Actually, the word faith comes from the Latin word fides, which is based on trust. And as we know, trust is based on 
evidence. It's not blind faith, but rather there is evidence that we actually can believe this to be true. Now, everybody practices fides every day. Matter of fact, this morning you practiced fides or you trusted things because there were people who went before you. For example, some of you went across a bridge today, right? And you didn't ask, hey, who were the civil engineers? Let me see the their degrees, let me see the blueprints. You just simply went across that bridge because you knew there were people who had gone before you that successfully crossed that bridge. Now, you're not guaranteed that you're going to make it across that bridge, but there's a good chance because of the people who have gone before you. You know, auto mechanics, I had an issue with my car this past week, and the people that I typically go to were not available, so I didn't know where to go. So I just picked a place that looked nice and, you know, they seemed like they were busy inside and there were other cars. So I entrusted my vehicle with them because apparently there were other people who had gone before me. And I just going to sort of, you know, trust that it's all going to work out. How about the church? I mean, some of you, I just met a couple this morning. They're here for the second time. Some of you are first time guests. You have placed extraordinary trust in our children's workers. Like you took your most prized possessions, your children, and you're like, go ahead and take them. And you just hope that it works out. You have trusted us. You trust the civil engineers of this building, right? Every day we place trust. Um, Actually, Jonathan Marmer, who's running our sound today, trusted me to cut his hair a couple of years ago. Because I kept trying to get other adults to let me cut their hair, but nobody trusts me because the only evidence is 12-year-old boys and under. And finally, he, well, he didn't have a choice because it was during the pandemic and there were no barbershops open. So he just kind of let me cut his hair and it, it all worked out, right? So all that to say is we practice fides all the time because people who have gone before us have placed their trust or placed their faith in them And it has worked out. So this is kind of the main point that I want to make today. And the main point I want to make throughout this series is simply this. That many before us believed the Gospels to be trustworthy. That over the course of the last 2,000 years, there have been many trustworthy people who have gone before us that have said, I have found Matthew, Mark, Luke, John to be worthy of trust, and in many cases, worthy of rearranging my entire life around this person, Jesus, who is recorded in the Gospels. Now, let me give you just a quick history lesson of how Christianity kind of exploded in the Roman world early on. You read in Acts chapter 2 that in the city of Jerusalem, we only had about 120 followers of Jesus Christ, okay? They come into the uh, temple courts, and Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, gives a sermon. Luke records it as fast as he can, so we kind of get the Cliff Notes version of this, this sermon. We've got people from all throughout the Roman world who are Jewish people. They show up in the temple courts to celebrate Pentecost, 50 days after Uh, the resurrection of Christ. They hear the gospel and 3,000 people get saved in one day and they're all getting baptized. It's kind of like a baptism jiffy lube, right? Where they go under and up. It's like next, you know, 3,000 of them. And then they they stick around Jerusalem for a while because this is amazing. Like God's doing some amazing things. And then it's finally time for them to go home because they all got jobs. And they head back throughout the rest of the Roman world and they start churches. And they tell people about this man named Jesus who's the Jewish Messiah, who had these amazing teachings, all of these miracles, and he predicted and pulled off his resurrection. Now, this is before the time where there was the Bible. It's before the time where even the gospel writers had written down the accounts of Jesus. And through oral testimony, the gospel catches fire and thousands of people 
give their lives to Jesus very, very early on. Now, I love this quote from Justo Gonzalez, who wrote the story of Christianity. He says, the true heroes of the early church weren't just the Apostle Paul. They weren't just Peter or the disciples. They weren't even priests, pastors, or missionaries. The true heroes of the gospel were merchants, slaves, traveling traders, and others who were able to take the message of the gospel throughout the Roman world. Okay, so here you've got the gospel going forth. It wasn't until about 15, 20, 30 years later that, the, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually decided to write down the biographies of Jesus. So for the first at least 15, probably 30 years, the stories of Jesus had been circulating and literally lighting the world on fire. So let me tell you how this happened. Luke, who we think followed around the Apostle Paul as he traveled throughout the Mediterranean world, sits down one day and he says, I got to write this down. I got to record this. And here's how he describes it at the very beginning of his gospel. Many, this is extraordinary because in the ancient world, there's only a few people that got anything written about them, right? Nowadays, you know, if you want, if you want to hear about 9-11, you can look up dozens of authors and dozens of documentary uh, filmmakers. In the ancient world, there is virtually nothing about some of the most famous people. But Luke says right away, many people have listened to the stories of Jesus throughout the years, and they have said, it is time for us to write this down so that we can pass it to the next generation. So many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated, this is a doctor, this is a man who cares about details, right? He's going around, he's asking people, he's interviewing hundreds of people who had witnessed the risen Christ. I've carefully investigated this from the beginning, and it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. He's probably a noble. He's probably a rich man who funded Luke's work, right? Because Luke needs money to be able to stay in hotels and buy food, and he needs traveling expenses. Theophilus gives him money so that he can write down, so that he can interview. And then the people take his documents. They write them down as fast as they can so that they can distribute it throughout the rest of the Roman world. He says, this was important so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So here you are, you're living in the Roman world at the very, very beginning, just a few years after the resurrection of Christ, and you're hearing the oral stories about Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the grave. There's no Bible, there's no gospel documents. It is purely based on oral tradition, and the Holy Spirit is doing a work like wildfire. And then finally, years later, 15, 20, 30 years later, the gospel writers decide to write down the biographies of Jesus. If we look at our chart here, Jesus who rose from the dead in about 30 AD, the gospels we think were written sometime between 45 AD would be about the earliest, 45, 50, 60 AD. The latest would be about 90 AD. Now, some people believe that they were written before 70 AD because 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed and there's nothing in the gospels about this cataclysmic event where the Romans come in and they put 100,000 
Jews in the slave market. They slaughter a million Jews. And because that's not mentioned in the gospel, many scholars say they must have been written prior to 70 AD. So 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Years later, towards about the end of the, the first century, the four gospels are circulated as a collection. Now, if I've lost you already with this history lesson, let me kind of give you a little contemporary illustration, all right? Speaking of ancient manuscripts, when I was in second grade, I wrote an autobiography called All About Me. Some of you are like, things never change. And, you know, it, it just talks a little bit about who I am. Like, you know, I like bacon cheeseburgers and hot dogs and pizza, stuff about airplanes. Um, and then we get to this part here that says, I saw Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3. I want to see Rocky 4. I don't know if my parents just didn't want me to see Rocky 4 yet. But this was like when I was a kid. So I was born in 1977. And the Rocky movies were the greatest movies of all time in my little world. And if you wanted to watch the Rocky movies, you had to go to a video rental place called Blockbuster or Family Video, and you would check out one of these things right here. You guys recognize what these are? It would have a little thing that said, please be kind, rewind, because you'd watch it, and, and you would just hope that the Rockies were still in Blockbuster. And then you would rent it, and you'd have it for a day, and it was just precious, right? This was like precious material. And then after you got done watching it, you would hand it back into the store. Now, when I was growing up, nobody owned VHS tapes because they cost a fortune. It was like $80 for one of these things, so nobody owned them. Years later, they would come out with these things called DVDs, right? And nobody owned DVDs either because these things cost a fortune. They were just, they were precious, right? You could, you could rent them. And, and you, you would take good care of them because they were so precious, but eventually you would have to turn them back in. Now, years later, my sister got me one of the greatest gifts of all time. She gave me the entire collection of the Rockies. Now, this, this was like the greatest gift I had ever received. Now I have it all to myself, right? I don't have to turn it back in. I can pull it out and watch them any time that I want. The precious original Rockies in my possession. And nowadays, you got all of them on these little screens that you have in your pocket, and you can get them any time that you want, right? So if you're living in the, the, the first world and you were to come back and visit us and learn that we actually have these ancient manuscripts on our phones, they would be astounded, astounded that we have such access. Because again, in, in, the, in the first century, you were lucky if your church had one of the gospel accounts. I mean, you'd show up Sunday morning, and if the pastor got up and said, I got Matthew's account right here, and he would read it, and you'd be like, wow, we are so fortunate and so blessed to actually be able to, to hear the, the account of Matthew or to hear the account of Luke or John. And again, at the end of the first century, finally they were able to get the collection of the gospels, which was just amazing. So if we look at the rest of our chart here, and we move past the 200s, um, 
people are protecting these ancient documents, right? They're, they're writing them as fast as they possibly can. They're distributing them out to the churches. Again, nobody owned them in their homes except for rich people like Theophilus who would fund the working of them, and they would be distributed throughout the Roman world. Um, by the end of the 290s, about 295 AD, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian who had what's called the Great Persecution. Now, up until this point, persecution, and you've heard the stories about the lions and people being burned at the stake, was mostly a sporadic event that occurred throughout the empire. Not all Christians were persecuted throughout all time. It was sporadic. The Romans early on didn't really know what to do with the Christians. They were like, these people were kind of weird because they gather together and they sing songs and they, the, the body and the blood of Jesus and they take communion. We, they didn't really know what to do with them. They didn't really like the Christians because they refused to bow down to the Roman gods. And if you don't bow down to the Roman gods, they're not going to send the rain. They're not going to help us in our military exploits. And if you don't bow down to Caesar and claim him as divine, then we're kind of afraid that you're going to start some kind of insurrection. And we're kind of worried about that. So, you know, every once in a while they would persecute Christians. But by far the worst was Diocletian, about 295 AD. And Diocletian said this, if you're a Christian, and you don't hand in your sacred books, right, all of these gospels that were circulating, then we're going to torture you, and we're going to kill you. But many of the Christians said, no, these, these sacred books are, are given to us by God, and they're, they're what inspires us. This, they're, they're what reminds us of what it's like to follow Jesus. We can't give in. And so as a result, thousands and thousands of Christians would be thrown to the lines and burned at the stake and brutally brutally tortured. This happened in about 295 AD. And then this amazing thing happened, if we stay at our chart here, where Constantine, the Roman emperor, was going into battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and he stares down Maxentius, this, this, this other Roman emperor. They're kind of about to go into battle. He's outgunned four to one. And according to legend, he prays that God would help them get through this battle. And he has this vision, and he sees these Christian symbols in the sky. And he tells all of his soldiers to paint the Christian symbols on their shields. And they go out, and they win this battle. And Constantine gives credit to Jesus Christ for this battle. And now it's illegal to persecute Christians because of the Edict of Milan, where Constantine says... I'm going to be a Christian, and you're not going to persecute Christians anymore. And so now we have here in 312, Christianity almost becomes like the official state religion. And all these people come out of hiding, and all of these sacred documents come out of being in hiding. And the, the leaders of the early church, the bishops and, and the pastors, they come together and they, they look at these books, and they discern that finally in 388, was the first time that we had what is called tabiblia or the Bible, which simply means a collection of books or the library of Scripture. Now, I make this point simply to say this, that Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the, get, the dead and sent his Holy Spirit, was already making massive movements in the empire long before there was a Bible. Because people really, really did believe that Jesus died and rose again and is worthy of following. The people in those days, because they didn't have copies of the scripture, would oftentimes memorize creeds. Many people couldn't read in those days. 
They couldn't just pull out a copy of the scriptures from their pocket. So they would memorize creeds so that they could have a nutshell version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps the most famous of all creeds, which every church on the globe agrees with, is called the Apostles' Creed, which was written sometime around 150 A.D. in the city of Rome. And if you grew up in a conservative or if you grew up in a traditional church, you may actually have the Apostles' Creed memorized. But I thought what we would do right now is just kind of imagine ourselves in one of those early churches where there's no scriptures, they don't have a copy of the Gospels, but they together recite the Apostles' Creed so that when they go out into the Roman world, they can share their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's say the Apostle Creed together. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what the early church knew, and that fueled them to go out and spread Jesus Christ to the masses. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, okay, Dave, thanks for the history lesson. That was interesting. But all you've done here is defend the gospels with another gospel account. Or all you've done is defend the gospels with, you know, the apostles' creed. What about all of the other historical works? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to look at what, the Oxford Companion to Classical Literature, I want to look at a man who is described as one of the greatest of historians. Okay, now again, this this is fascinating because in those days, there's not much history written about anybody, much less a Jewish day laborer who was crucified by the Romans. We've already established that Luke says many people have undertaken to write about him, and today we have four Gospels In the ancient world, you know, we talked about the the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. From 66 to 70 AD, there was this massive war. The temple was destroyed. Everybody agrees that that happened. No serious historian would say, I don't think that happened. That's like someone nowadays who says, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. It's like, well, I'm not even going to take you seriously as a historian. You know how we know 70 AD happened, the destruction of the temple? It's because of one guy's record by the name of Flavius Josephus. And yet nowadays, we have four records of the life of Jesus, and we have a secular historian or a non-Christian historian who also tells us about Jesus, and his name is Cornelius Tacitus, who lived in 56 to 120 A.D. He wrote two major works, one called Annals, the other called Histories. And he wrote about the reign of Tiberius, who ruled when Jesus was crucified, Claudius and Nero. You may have heard the story about 64 A.D., right, where Nero, who's the Roman emperor, um, uh, the big fire breaks out, 64 A.D., about 30 years after Christ's resurrection. There's a big fire that breaks out, destroys most of the city of Rome. And all of the Romans blame Nero. 
And Nero doesn't know what to do about it, so he instead blames the Christians, and he lights up Christians in his garden and throws them in his circus and unleashes the first major persecution of the Christians. Well, the reason we know about that is because of Cornelius Tassus, because he talked about it. He also talked about this, that Christ was put to death while Tiberius was emperor from 14 to 37 AD, and while Pontius Pilate was in charge of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. And again, he talks about the great fire in Rome, where there was a vast multitude of Christians in Rome. Okay, now think about this for a second. This is amazing. 30 years, 34 years or so, after the resurrection of Christ, there are so many Christians living in Rome that Nero looks at these Christians and blames the fire on them, right? I mean, this is incredible. You have a vast amount of Christians, so many so that Nero can point to them. So Tacitus, a guy who's not friendly to Christians, demonstrates to us that Jesus lived and that Jesus lived in this certain time period. That's one non-Christian historian. There's another guy. Again, there's not many historians in these days that talk about anybody. So it's, it's amazing how many people there are. Next guy I want to talk about is called Pliny the Younger. I didn't look up to figure out why his name is the Younger. Maybe he had an older brother named Pliny, and he's like, I just want you to know that I'm the Younger one, right? Like, I'm Pliny. It's kind of like, you remember the Bob Newhart show, right, where, where the guy's like, my name's Larry. This is my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl, right? Like, maybe he had an older brother named Pliny. I don't know why he was called Pliny the Younger. But this guy ruled in the Roman world, if we look at our map here, um, in what is modern-day Turkey. And one day, Pliny the Younger looks at all these Christians, right? thousands of Christians. He's ruling over them. And he doesn't really know what to do with all of them. Again, he's like, they, they do weird things. Like they, they sing songs and they practice communion. And they're, they're really nice people, but I'm afraid they're going to start an uprising. So he writes a letter to Trajan, who was the Roman emperor at the time. And I want to read to you part of the letter that Pliny writes to Trajan right around the year 100 AD, so about 70 years after the resurrection of Christ. Here's what Pliny writes to Trajan. Dear Trajan, I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed, it is, repeated the que- I repeated the question a second and a third time, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. For whatever the nature of their belief might be, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserved punishment. He goes on. Those who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and incense to your statue... Right? So they'd bring out the statue of Caesar, and if you bowed down, then that would prove that you were not an authentic Christian, together with the images of the gods, and who finally cursed Christ, I thought they should be discharged. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. So I thought we would become like the early church. We're going to start a, next, a new service next week at 5 a.m., just so we could be a little more like, who would come to that? 5 a.m. We might have to put espresso in our coffee. Is that what someone said over there? 
They were in the habit of meeting a certain fixed day before it was light and of singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. I mean, they actually believed that this man was like a God and of binding themselves by a solemn oath not to wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a pledge when they were called upon to deliver it up. Many persons of all ages and ranks and of both sexes are being and will be called to trial. For this contagious superstition, again, the Roman world looked at these Christians like, it's contagious because it's spreading like wildfire, but it seems like a bunch of superstition to me. This contagious superstition is not confined only to the cities, but also it has spread through the villages and the rural district. Think about this. In this room right here, we've got country people, city people, people from all different walks of life, just like it was in the early church. Or like, I just don't get it. I mean, they got people from countries, all different ages, and they're, they're coming together to worship him, Plan of the Younger. So Trajan gets this letter, and here's how he responds. When they are denounced and found guilty, they must be punished. However, when an individual denies that he is a Christian and gives proof of it, i.e., by adoring our gods, he shall be pardoned on the grounds of repentance. And the Christian said, okay, but we're going to keep gathering together to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the God of the universe. And as a result, thousands were killed for their faith. Justo Gonzalez writes this, the Christians answered that they were loyal subjects of the empire. Look, we're not here, emperor, to try to start an uprising. We're not here to disobey you. We're not here to try to make life difficult for you. We are loyal subjects of Rome. And Gonzalez writes, what the emperor needs, the Christian said, is not to be worshipped, but to be served. And those who serve him best are those who pray for him and for the empire to the only true now, maybe this is a different sermon for a different day, but I think if the early Christians were to come to us nowadays and see the way that we talk about some of our leaders, political leaders, some of the people who are in authority over us, they would be like, okay, come back in time with me and take a look at what they asked us to do. And yet we prayed for them. And we gave our lives for this gospel that we believe to be true and thousands of people would be sent into the arenas and burned at the stake and persecuted because they really did believe that the gospel accounts were true. Tertullian, one church leader, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you have to believe that many of these early Christians knew of the statement that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed are those who are willing to die 
for something that they believed to be true. So here's a question. How, how do you know? How do you know that the gospel is real? And I, I, I would say to you that one of the reasons that I believe that the gospels are true, one of the reasons that I know is because my parents told me so, right? And some of you in this room had parents who told you so. And some of you in this room had parents who went through extraordinary difficulties that you would be exposed to this timeless message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, my mother taught me about Jesus and her mother sitting in a basement one day listening to Billy Graham on the television gave her life to Jesus and bended her knee to Jesus as Savior. My dad, who didn't even believe in Jesus till he got to college and in college decided to major in philosophy because he's trying to figure out the meaning of life, went to a fraternity, Phi Gamma Delta, not the most likely place where you're going to meet Jesus, but met a guy named Craig Lyle who was the offensive lineman on the Penn State football team and he met Jesus And he taught his kids about Jesus. And my parents had people that surrounded them who taught them about Jesus. And many of you are here today because you had people who cared about you enough to tell you about Jesus. And it goes on and on and on. And it goes all the way back to the early church who really did believe that the Gospels were reliable. I love what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. One of the very last letters that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, he says this, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. So if you have parents who believe in Jesus, or if you had parents who taught you the way while you were growing up, you should be oh so thankful. And even if you don't have parents, but you've learned the way of Jesus by the people maybe sitting right next to you, you should be oh so thankful. That is a big deal. Now, I I know you've got more questions, and we're going to hit up some of these questions in the, the coming weeks. Some of you are asking the question, well, is Jesus really the only way to be saved? Is Is he really the only way to go to heaven? Because you look at this pie chart and you're like, okay, Christianity is 31%, Islam 22%, atheists 15%, and you've got all these different religions. Is Christianity Christianity really the only way? And if you were to ask someone from the first century that question, I have a hunch they might say something like this. Wow, you mean like 32% of the world is Christian? Because when I was growing up in the city of Rome, it was like 0.36%. And everybody around me worshipped the Greek and Roman pantheon. And everybody around me bowed their knee to Caesar and burned incense to what they believed was real. And then one day, my neighbor came up to me and said, hey, have you heard about Jesus? And I saw him live it out. And I saw his life look so much different than other people. And I went to their weird church services that at first they're singing and they're, it just didn't make any sense. But I kept on going back because there was just something different about Jesus. And then I saw some of my friends get burned at the stake because they believed this to be true. And so I gave my life to Jesus. And it changed my life. 
So I, I know you've got questions, and I know we, we all have lots of questions about the Bible and, and history and all these sorts of things. But really, the most important question is simply this. Is Jesus who he says he is? Did he really die and get buried and rise again? Because if the answer to that question, if, all, if even only one of the Gospels is true, game on. Lean in. Because that could change your life. As many of the people in this room would say, he's changed my life. So, join the church. Join the church that has stood the test of time for 2,000 years. And so here's what we're going to do as the church right now. We're going to do what Pliny the Younger accused Christians of doing early on when he wrote... They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. Let me just say this. If you get in the habit of being here on Sunday mornings, that's just kind of different to the rest of the world. And if you say, I'm not, I'm not going to be inconsistent, I'm not going to just come when it's convenient, but I'm going to make it a habit to be here every Sunday morning, that is countercultural. What if we did that? What if we said, I'm going to be here on a fixed day a week, and and I'm going to sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to not a God, but the one true God. And I'm going to bind myself by solemn oath, not to wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, and never to falsify my word. I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to worship him weekly, and I'm going to do my best to live a holy life. You do that, and you will present compelling evidence to a world that's asking that question. Is Jesus really worth following? Are the gospels really reliable? My prayer and my challenge to you is that you would live your life for Jesus and that you would send the message to the world that, man, he's worth following. He's worth giving everything to. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now, and we're going to close with a couple of, these aren't ancient hymns, because ancient's like 2,000 years, but they're pretty old. They were written in the 1800s, and these songs are about crowning him as Lord and hailing him as this, this God-man who came to die for us. And if you think about all those early Christians who had that choice, am I going to bow my knee to Caesar? Am I going to burn my incense to honor Caesar? Or am I going to take a stand for the Lord of all? The God who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together before we sing these hymns together. God, we love you. We thank you for these amazing truths. We thank you that we can believe with integrity, that we don't have to check our brains at the door, but we can believe with integrity that you really did come and die and get buried and rise again. And right now, as your church, for those of us who are Jesus followers, we want to rise up and sing songs that are worthy to your name. We want to crown you as Lord of all because you are so worth following. We pray this in the precious, most amazing name of the God of the universe who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Well, I hope you feel more confident. I hope you feel encouraged in your faith to be able to share your faith better with your coworkers or with your friends or with your family, because it is true that the gospel of Jesus is in fact reliable. And so until we're together again, I want to say thank you for joining in on this episode of the Bear Town Road Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you.